You're listening to Faith Community Church's weekly podcast. We hope this week's message from God is insightful and an inspiration to you. Well, with that, I want to encourage you, um, gosh, to talk about the peace of God. Grab a Bible. Um, the FCC Bibles are those big, thick, black ones in the chair back that you see in front of you. And turn to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. And uh, we're going to get into a really fun study in the weeks ahead. Romans 8 verse 1. Before we dive in, just hold it there. Let's pray this morning. God, we are absolutely thankful for your Father heart. It's the journey of getting closer to you is ever the journey of finding out, oh, wow, he's that much better than I ever thought. And stripping away all the layers of suspicion of you and stripping away the layers of, like, you know, uh, just different experiences from maybe our father figures that were difficult. And I just want to say thank you, Father, for being, as you're described in the New Testament, this Abba kind of father, this father we can call Dada, Daddy, good one, faithful one. We enter into that today because we're going to study a passage that reminds us how for us you really are. And that's it's something we've heard if we've ever been to a church camp or a church worship service or a Sunday school class or talked to a Christian before, like you're for us, but sometimes it just sort of slips out of our grasp. And so, Father, this morning, as we go through these weeks ahead studying this beautiful passage, I pray that we can absorb the gospel for the first time. Maybe again, or maybe hopefully in an even deeper way than even before in our lives. And so, God, we give you this in your name. Amen. Um, forgive me, by the way, for dressing in a, my father's natural habitat clothing this morning. I just was like, what's well, Father's Day? I'm going to dress the way I want to dress. So that's how I'm dressing. Um, but I, I, let me, I, I'm going to try to start this by saying this. Let me see if I, if I can do this. I want to try to describe... Um, my, my natural reactions and my internal dialogue that take place when I blow it, make a mistake, or dare I, you know, go there and call it what the Bible calls it when I sin. Here's what goes on. Now, the truth is I could pick from, if you were to like walk alongside me in my life, I could pick from thousands of moments of sin in my life. Why? Because I'm human, like you. I could pick from thousands of them, but they really all could be summed up as moments where in the pursuit of satisfying a restless mood inside of me, I act out in some way that treats the world or and everyone else as less important than me achieving whatever I've decided I've got to do to satisfy my restless mood. That is a summary. It's a cross-section of the thousands of sins that I've committed in my lifetime. When that happens, and I kind of wake up and I see the damage that I have done to other people, and even to myself, I begin to feel waves of guilt. And that is always followed by attempts at leveling blame. This is just me. I'm just describing my personal cross-section here. First, what I do is I, I try to blame God 
the situation that I was in, or I try to blame other people um, to somehow try to make this, these waves of guilt that I'm feeling. Somehow it's not so that it's not my fault. And then when I start to realize, I don't think I can blame anybody. Oh, crap. I have to blame myself. Well, then I blame myself, and then I really beat myself up, and I start to look at myself to condemn myself, and there's this strong feeling inside that starts to well up within me. It's the feeling that goes something like this, is that those who fail are no longer worthy to be loved, and they deserve to be punished. Something like that. You know, that kind of, that kind of like emotional landscape inside of me. And then what I do from that, when I have this feeling of when you fail, you're not worthy to be loved anymore, and you probably should be punished by someone somewhere, then I try to keep my distance from God, because even if somebody were to tell me that God really doesn't mind looking at me, I don't think he should like looking at me, because I feel so bad about myself. And then what I do is I, I try to think up a way to show God how bad that I feel and somehow try to work out some way to make it better. Uh, this is the, I'm, I'm telling you the honest truth. This is the whole pattern that has been a common spiritual practice for me for years in my life. Now, I've been vulnerable with you, so I'm going to ask you to be vulnerable with me. If I may ask, what about you? What's been the normal reaction the internal dialogue that most often takes place in you when you blow it, you make a mistake. Do we allow ourselves to call it sin? Let's just do that. Do you, when that happens in your life, do you think nothing of it pretty much? You know, or, you know, but maybe kind of like a churchified version of you don't think about it that much, where it's like, well, you know, God's a forgiving God. It's his business to forgive me. He, that's what his job is. That kind of thing. Do you think, as I have thought over those years, is like those who fail are not really worthy to continue being loved and they deserve to be punished? Do you engage in a penance act that you've created over the years? This churchified penance act. You know, finding some sort of way you can kind of work off your guilt until you feel like you've done enough, and then you can look at yourself in the mirror, and then the day when you think you can look at yourself in the mirror, then you can go, okay, I'll talk to you again, God. And that's just like a, a, a small list. What, what, what's been it for you? You know, those are important questions to ask, and I'll tell you why it's important. Because the way you answer the question is actually an x-ray it's an x-ray into the insides of your personal gospel existence. How you answered those questions I just asked you provides to you the x-ray on the chart that says, this is what's going on on your insides of your personal gospel good news existence. How you answer it honestly tells us a lot. It tells us whether we have a healthy gospel existence that has actually integrated the, the amazing reality of the relationship God has given to us through his son, Jesus Christ. Or it tells us that we have an unhealthy gospel existence that really needs to better understand and integrate the amazing reality of what God the Father, we're celebrating fathers today, on his own, hatched as his plan through the Son and through the Spirit to give us as a gift of life. 
So we're going to do this series because here's, here's my, my thesis. Maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong. I think we all can have a healthier gospel existence. If you've been with Faith Community Church all through the 16 years and you kind of track through the year, you kind of go, huh, Andy always seems to do a series at least once a year trying to remind us of the profound grace of God. Why does he do that? I'll tell you why. Because we're doofuses when it comes to understanding the grace of God. And I put myself at the front of the list. And so I think we need a healthier gospel existence all the time. So we're going to begin this summer series, God is for us. It's a direct quote right out of the chapter we're going to study. Because the fact is it only takes one new stumble into sin. It only takes one new measure of pain in a broken world for us to see if, do we really get it? Do we really get that God is for us? Do we really get the full reality of the gospel relationship that God has gifted to us? And so here's what we're going to do. We are going to study one chapter of the Bible over the next weeks of the summer, through the heart of summer. And it's called Romans chapter 8. And we're going to study it verse by verse by verse by verse. And what we're going to do is we're going to see, I hope, even more so that God really is for us and he's not against us. Theologians and scholars consider Romans chapter 8, this book, this chapter we're going to study, they consider it like the highest mountain peak of the high mountain peaks of the entire New Testament, this part of the Bible we're going to study. I mean, across the board, scholars and theologians think this. And in fact, uh, pastor, vicar, teacher, historian, author, and theologian, N.T. Wright, Tom Wright, in his beautiful biography on the Apostle Paul. By the way, if you're looking for great summer reading, get N.T. Wright's on Kindle or whatever it is, you can get it quick, his biography on the Apostle Paul and read it. But in his biography on the Apostle Paul, he writes this, and I'll put it up on the screen. He says this about Romans 8. It's the richest, deepest, and most powerfully sustained climax anywhere in the literature of the early Christian movement, and perhaps anywhere else as well. That's what we're going to study in the days and weeks ahead. So, you got your Bibles. Took me a while to get there. But if you got your Bibles, let's look at Romans chapter 8, and we're going to read the first three verses. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. Praise God for his holy word. Now, the first word that I read there is the word therefore. Some of you who've been in church culture for a while, you know that when you stumble upon a word therefore, the key question to ask is, what is it therefore? What's it therefore? Here's what that therefore in Romans 8 verse 1 is telling us. Here's what it's saying. 
call to mind the entire context leading up to this great chapter in the middle of a, the greatest book on the greatest of good news to the world ever. Call to mind the entire context. So, okay, that begs the question, so what's the context? What, like, what, what led up from, we're in Romans 8, so what, what happened in Romans 1 through 7? Well, to keep it overly simple, <laughs> forgive me for that, but to keep it very simple, let me try to give you a summary. First part of the summary is this. Paul establishes this. I am so bad, bad, that Jesus had to die for me. That's Romans 1 and 2 and 3 up to 3 and a half. Paul goes through and he talks in Romans chapter 1. It's like like sort of the happy, I don't know nothing about God. Some people would call them pagans. They, they're actually not as, they're not without excuse. There's things that they are called to respond to about what little they do or don't know. Romans chapter two, Paul establishes to the very religious person, yeah, you're not as good a, good a space as you think you are. And then he ends in the, like halfway into Romans chapter three saying this, and I'm just re- reading it, and he's actually quoting the Old Testament. Romans three, 10 through 12. There's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. There's no one who does good, not even one. Ooh, tough diagnosis. I'm so bad. God, Jesus had to die for me. And then he continues on, and then he says this, and I'm so loved, Jesus was glad to die for me. That's Romans chapter three and a half, all the way through Romans chapter seven. Where Paul takes those words from Romans 3 that says, there's no one righteous, there's not even one, there's no one who seeks God. And then in Romans 5, 8, which is one of my favorite and Alita's favorite verses in the entire Bible, where in Romans 5, 8, Paul says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So all of what leads to Paul's therefore in Romans 8.1 is this entire context of this story. I'm so bad that Jesus had to die for me. And I am so loved. Jesus was glad to do that. Because all of that is true. The text we just read says that a believer lives in two very powerful, unchanging realities. Because all of that is true. The first reality is this. We live in a reality now in verse 1. There's no guilt anymore. Somehow integrate that into your thinking. There's no guilt anymore. The early part of Romans established the facts of the case against us. That there truly are, there are scary, scary consequences awaiting every broken and sinful human being before a holy God. And what do we mean by holy God in scripture? We mean that God is both, he is both breathtakingly good and breathtakingly dangerous at the same time. That's what we mean by holy And there are scary consequences, but Jesus took the full brunt of those consequences for everyone who would trust in him. Oh, sisters and brothers, man, I hope that you have put your trust in him. So that the people who have put their trust in him at all times, including their struggles with sin, can know that they're free from any penalty or charge that God in all of his fairness could hold against us. That's Romans chapter 8, verse 1. The first most important reality that we have as a Christian is there's no guilt anymore. 
The second one is this in verse 2. There's no bondage anymore. No bondage. You're like, well, how's that work, Andy? I just sinned this morning against my wife. The spirit of the living God, according to what Paul says in verse 2, the spirit of the living God has rushed into the center of a believer's life. And here's sin. Sin's got a stranglehold on us. It's a stranglehold, and this is just the way it's going. And the Holy Spirit rushes into the center of a believer's life to work within them to cut off the stranglehold of sin. And the Spirit takes up residence, and it begins to make it so that sin is no longer the inescapable default setting. Yeah, you may struggle with sin as a, as a Christian, but guess what? You actually are sane enough to recognize it as a struggle. It was before Jesus an inescapable default setting. It's just what you did. It was just the air you breathed. The Spirit comes in to take that out and, dis, and to, 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 to cut it out and immediately begins the process of continually and surgically removing the default of sin. That's a pretty powerful reality that you and I have given it to us as a gift. No guilt, no more bondage. Now that amazing news, it leaves us with a really big question for Paul. At least I have a question for Paul. When, when I'm sane and I realize that God's not doing this because I'm a pretty nice guy and it kind of makes sense that he was kind to me, you know, that kind of thing we do as Christians. And I get past that insanity and I'm in a place of sanity going, how would, how, huh? how is God doing this? Why? This is crazy. How could that kind of crazy kindness to establish for me, who deserves to stand before God guilty, who deserves to have sin continually having the stranglehold on my life, that's what, I, that's what I've earned, that's what I deserve. How, how did God pull that off? Well, the first thing Paul tells us in verse 3, he tells us that God's exquisite law code, Ten Commandments, Leviticus, and they're exquisite. You watch them, you go, oh, this is what it could be like to walk with God and walk with others in peace and shalom. But, but Paul says, look, as exquisite as God's law code was, it could never empower our fractured human nature to actually live up to that law code. We're just too fractured. So what, how God did this is God went for the jugular of the sin curse. I mean, he went for the jugular by... Paul says two things in verse, verse 3. He says, number one, he sent his son, talk about crazy, to enter our disordered, broken human existence. I wouldn't do that. I mean, are you going to drop yourselves into enemy lines in Russia right now to make peace with them? Would you do that? But God dropped Jesus into enemy territory, into our disordered, broken human existence. And second, then Jesus took our place as a sin offering that completely satisfies every claim that God could ever have against us. And he he was going to come and remove sin's capacity to dictate the terms of our relationship to God. So how did God pull off this crazy, no guilt, no bondage anymore? First thing is God went for the jugular with sin through the cost of his son. And the second thing Paul says in verse 4 is, Jesus' sacrifice for us sets up a new reality. It's engineered by a holy God. And here's the reality. Where the Ten Commandments, the exquisite law code of God, actually begins to become the Ten Fulfillments 
in our life. The Ten Commands become the Ten Fulfillments because sin actually begins this process of being wiped out in a believer's life as they increasingly stop walking according to the bondage of the addiction to the sin-cursed flesh, which still dogs us. We can be honest about that. But we begin to increasingly walk according to the Spirit, according to this new no-condemnation reality that the Holy Spirit within us is constantly whispering, you have an Abba Father. He's a good Father. You are not guilty before Him. You are being set free from bondage before Him. And if we listen to it, it makes a big difference. Paul is explaining to us this cosmic shift that God has engineered for our benefit through the suffering of His Son. And this is the cosmic shift for those of us who believe, by the way. And if there's any here youth in here this morning or people who've never made this, this transaction, that's not the right word, this, this act of trust with God, listen carefully to what I'm going to say because this is a cosmic shift that could be yours. For those who believe the cosmic shift is you exit the condemnation justly hanging over our head like a death sentence. And you enter a condemnation-free existence of this radically safe and radically secure place in the heart of God that you didn't do anything to get. It was given to you as a gift. So here's the point that I want us to see in these first four verses. Jesus Christ gives me a permanent assurance of a safe and a secure standing before God. I'm not giving myself that. Get that out of your churchified head. Jesus is giving you that and me that. Permanent assurance. Won't ever go away. Now, I will say, you know, if you've walked with Jesus for any period of time, you went to summer camps, Bible camps, Bible vacation school, summertime, right? Those are going on. You go to church, you go to Sunday school, you saw a televangelist on TV, whatever. If you've been, you've seen any of this for any period of time, it's very easy to see a point like that, right? And to look at it and to think to yourself, yeah, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, of course, I, I know that. Do you? Do you really? Do you really know that? Are you living that every moment 24 7? Because I want to say something. The true test of whether you know this stuff, it's not discovered when you're feeling pretty good. And like, I'm walking in the reality of God's grace. I feel pretty good about my walk with God. I feel very pretty good about my behaviors lately. I feel pretty good like last week I was upholding my morality pretty well. I feel pretty good, whatever it is, making you feel pretty good about yourself. That is not the test of when you, oh, I've got, the, I, got I, I know that. That's not the test. The true test is found when you're miserable somehow. You're miserable in some way, some way because you've sinned, you've stumbled, you've failed. Pain has been foisted upon you. Life has piled on. That's the test. When that happens, and then you're still walking in that reality. You're still walking in that reality before God. When everything in your head and your heart says, God's checked out, 
God's not answering my prayer. God's fallen silence or everything in your head and heart screams. God cannot and maybe even should not be okay with you. And you still are leaning into that. That's when you know, oh, now I'm getting the gospel. Now I got it. I want you to know God leaves in our care. He has gifted this reality to us. It's a gift. You can take it or not. But he leaves in our care the deep integration of this gospel reality so that it saturates our soul landscape. That's what he's left into your care. How much do you want to knead it into your soul landscape? It is deeply significant that this reality saturates your soul landscape. Because, here's, what, here's the, the fact. When the reality that Jesus gives me a permanent assurance of a safe and secure standing with God, when that is not deeply integrated into the soul landscape, then don't kid yourself. There's people in churches all throughout the world. It's not deeply integrated. When that happens, I end up consistently blaming. It's God's fault. It's the world's fault. My parents' fault. My pastor's fault. My teacher's fault. Whatever it is for your stumbles. I've got to blame somebody because I can't, I can't live with myself if I'm the reason. When that's not integrated, you stumble into that. When that's not integrated, you end up consistently defining life by moments of your victimization. When that's not integrated, you consistently beat yourself up. More than people even know when you stumble. When that's not integrated, you end up consistently medicating the favorite American pastime. Medicating stumbles, more sex, more porn, more stuff, more booze, more drugs, more whatever. And Christians do all these things, consistent Christians who are saved. Because it's not integrated into the soul landscape. But when the reality that Jesus gives me a permanent assurance of a safe and secure standing with God, when that is deeply kneaded in like yeast into dough, deeply integrated into the life, I end up consistently not experiencing as deep a slide into compulsive sin anymore. It's funny how that works. I end up consistently not experiencing as long a duration of groveling before God when I sin. It goes from three days to one day, one day to one hour, whatever it is. But you end up consistently not groveling as much anymore. I end up consistently not confusing God with the brokenness of life in a broken world. I end up consistently not accusing God when I'm in pain or I have failed. I end up consistently getting up and still moving forward after I've stumbled. I end up consistently finding myself experiencing a deeper love of God, even when life really hurts me. So here's my appeal. Let's talk about celiac disease for a second. And you're like, I wish you wouldn't. <laughs> but just go with me for this for a second, okay? Um, I know, it's weird, but just, just hang with me for a second. As a gluten-full person, 
from a gluten-full family, Italian family, I have to say I know I don't understand the suffering that some of even the people of this church suffer from, from celiac disease. It's, it's rough. According to the Mayo Clinic's website, I didn't make this stuff up just so you know. According to the Mayo Clinic website, celiac's disease were a very normal ingredient in human food consumption, something called gluten, normal ingredient, causes an immune reaction in some people's bodies that dismantles the little tiny villi in the small intestines that are the little tiny instruments that God put there to help us take food and absorb it into our bodies for nutrients. Over time, that reaction, it damages the villi lining of the small intestine to the point the body, um, it keeps the body from absorbing life-giving nutrients from all food. And it's a, something, it's, uh, in science and in medicine, it's something called malabsorption. That's the official title for it. Malabsorption. Malabsorption for the person who suffers from it, it causes uncomfortable GI distress, it causes fatigue, it causes weight loss, it can lead to really serious health complications. The only treatment for malabsorption, celiac disease, is two things. Number one, a lifelong for the rest of your life, gluten-free diet. It knocks out, it eradicates barley, rye, and wheat. And the second thing is that it is a, a lifelong commitment to heighten a healthy diet of food on all other fronts of your eating habits. Eradication of gluten, heightening healthy diet. So just try to stick with me here, because you're like, I didn't come to church to learn about medicine, so where are you going with this? Well, some of us, many, I don't know, the Spirit knows right now, have spiritual celiac disease. I'm probably looking at some. You have spiritual celiac disease, spiritual malabsorption. We suffer from gospel malabsorption because certain parts of our personal brokenness in our life, sins of our past that we're still beating ourselves up for, can't quite believe God could forgive, uh, past pain, past victimization, past exposure to false gospels. We suffer from this because certain parts of our personal brokenness that I just listed They make it so that we can't quite absorb the full reality of the gospel. We hear it again and again, and Andy teaches on it probably once a year, goes back through it, and we hear it again and again, and we can't digest it. And the treatment is two things, just like celiac disease. Number one, a lifelong commitment to subtract the non-gospel diet. So it's a commitment we have to make. And it's tough for people with celiac disease. What? No wheat? No, for the rest of what? The non-gospel diet of the things that we're listening to, the things that we're engaging, the things that we're often, often thinking about. And number two is to add a gospel-rich diet that is healing the spiritual autoimmune response for us that can't quite digest the gospel. So Paul tells us in Romans 8, verses 1 through 4, that Jesus Christ gives me permanent, that's a key word, 
assurance of a safe and secure standing before God at all times if I put my trust in Jesus. My appeal to us at Faith Community Church this summer is because that fact is so easily lost on us, embrace the gospel by eradicating the false and increasing the truth in my mental and emotional diet. Learn how to better embrace the gospel, embracing the false non-gospel stuff that's in my diet and increasing the truth of the real gospel in my mental and emotional diet, the things that are going on within me. Now, when I say eradicate eradicate the non-gospel, here's what I mean. I mean, God gives us the responsibility to steward our lives. He gives us the gift of this life, but we're still, still supposed to be us walking with God in this. And so, I mean, you need and I need to assess our thought and emotional diet to actually examine what does this does this square with the gospel and if it doesn't eradicate it get it out of your diet does your daily intake of information from and we live in right the information age we're being bombarded with data all the time now far more than when I was a little kid growing up in the wonder years you know Does that information you're taking in from your Twitter feed and your social media and the radio and the podcast and the TV and the streaming and the whatever it is, does that stuff dismantle your hold on the good news? Eradicate it. Or you're going to create yourself spiritual malabsorption problems. Do unaddressed pains from your past and dysfunctions from your family of origin? Do they dismantle your ability to digest the good news? Then I want to encourage you, get some counseling help where a counselor can help you, a pastor can help you dismantle that. Eradicate it, excuse me. Does the incorrect name that you gave yourself years ago? I'm lame. I'm average, I'm a loser, I always blow it. Whatever, whatever your name that you gave yourself, and then you know the backstory, the narrative that goes with that name, that you've developed for yourself, does that dismantle your ability to embrace the good news? Get help so you can cut that thing free from your life. Eradicate it. Does some false gospel from a previous church or some previous spiritual experience keep you from digesting the goodness of the good news? Again, I say get help eradicating that out of your emotional and mental diet. And then when I say increase the real gospel in your mental and emotional diet, I mean increase your exposure to gospel truths. Like take seriously spiritual disciplines that fill you, inform you. you that's the key. Spiritual disciplines that fill you and form you. You and I are always engaged in spiritual disciplines all the time, every day. Everything we do is forming us spiritually in every other way. But do ones that fill you and form you. Like, fill your mind with Scripture. Did you know that a, a, at any moment on the planet, from the first day God revealed his oracle of love to the human race, whatever the first book argument is, is maybe it was the book of Job, that came to the planet where we ended up with 66 books of the Bible, you are living in a time where there's literally zero excuse to not have scripture coming at you at least once a day. 
You can have it in this language or that language or in that translation. You go, I don't like reading it. Well, then have it read to you. You can have a lovely British accent reading it to you. You can have somebody who's got sort of a street accent reading it to you. You can have it in the message version, the New New International version. You can have it read to you. Have scripture coming at you. You're like, well, I, 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 you know, and memorize it. You go, well, I don't know how to memorize. Do you know John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, son, that who should ever believe in him? That, take that and just meditate it on a daily basis. And some of you may say to me, oh, but Pastor Andy, the Bible, it's so alien and foreign to me. I, I don't know. I just haven't picked it up to read it. Folks, look, if I said that same thing when I married Alita almost 30 years ago, she's so foreign and alien to me. I just don't know even how to get started. That would be a miserable recipe for our, our marriage. Get in the Bible. Cast your cares upon your God. Spend time with him in prayer. And if you've got to process with him the places in your life where you struggle with your own spiritual celiac disease, we'll tell God that. Place yourself regularly in community with other believers who are trying. They're trying to make sense of and enjoy the fullness of the gospel reality in our lives. And, and, and I mean like regularly. To be in community with those kind of people. These are the things that God leaves in our care to help us steward our full enjoyment of the amazing reality of our safe and secure standing before God. Our place in the heart of the Father. I'm going to invite Calvin, whole band, come on up. Um, They're going to lead us in some musical worship. We're going to take communion. But every time we hear this gospel, the gospel fact That God is for us and he's not against us. It is another opportunity to experience abundant life in greater degree. Some of you who are listening, this may be the moment that you have the chance to embrace the good news for the first time. Not like, you know, and by the first time, like this is a real true encounter with the living God that you can have right now. He kind of said yes at camp, and he got dunked because a couple other friends did too. And But this is like, this could be your encounter. Please don't miss this moment to actually embrace salvation and abundant life by believing that Jesus Christ has given you permanent assurance of safety and security before God, a holy God. Don't let today pass without doing that. But a lot of you are already believers. Praise God for that. But this is yet another moment to embrace the good news again. Please don't miss this moment to say, thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for this costly gift of grace. And digest this reality that your God is for you. He will never be anything other than for you. So that from digesting that fact, that the landscape of your soul becomes increasingly flooded with greater sense of security and joy and shalom. Jesus gives us this permanent assurance of a safe and secure standing before God. And if you believe that from your heart, can I get an amen? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your Father's heart. You hatched the plan to save us. The son said, I'm willing to be the sacrifice. And the Holy Spirit said, I'm willing to try to convict them of sin and then indwell them. And it's going to hurt me, but I'm going to do it. Thank you. The triunity, the holy three, 
for what you have given us as your act of mercy and grace. We do not deserve it. That is our confession. But the other part of our confession is we're thankful that we can receive it. In the name of your son, Jesus, the sacrifice who satisfies you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this production of Faith Community Church in Santa Cruz, California. To visit our complete archive of sermons, to learn more about FCC, or to view our live streaming services, please visit us online at santacruzfaith.org.